Welcome to Liquid Church Audio. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered at Liquid by Pastor Tim Lucas. Liquidchurch.com, living water for a thirsty generation. Now, we're live on the web. Now, this is a picture of Temple Church. It's one of the key settings in the Da Vinci Code. It's the scene of this heart-pounding encounter in the novel as, as Robert Langdon, the Harvard symbologist, and Sophie Nouveau, who's this French cryptologist. They're the main characters in Brown's novel. They clash with these sinister forces trying to keep this explosive truth, this secret, under wraps. And the Temple Church actually is a real setting. Have you ever been there? If you went over to London, you'd find it between Fleet Street and the River Thames among these modern office buildings. It's tan. It's about 800 years old. It's round like a castle's tower. And many of Dan Brown's facts, actually, about Temple Church are accurate. For instance, there's no dispute that it was built by the Knights Templar, the crusaders who protected the holy places in Palestine. These are the guys who provided safe passage and security for pilgrims who were visiting the Holy Land, and they actually became wealthy bankers. Now, if you visited this church today, Temple Church in London, you'd find chilling evidence of their legacy, actually, as soon as you walked into the main sanctuary. Because under your feet you discover nine chilling stone effigies of these ancient knights embedded in the floor of the church. This is fact. But Dan Brown goes on to tell us that these knights actually served as the military wing of this secret society, the Priory of Sion, that was charged with protecting this little-known but earth-shattering secret about Jesus and his church. And that secret, Brown tells us, was taken to their graves, buried with them, until today. Because members of the Priorius of Sion, which include, of course, Leonardo da Vinci, have encoded in this secret, famous works of art, passing it along to anyone who looks hard enough and seeks after the real truth, which has been suppressed and hidden for centuries. Now, last week, I showed you the crux of the matter, right? We looked at da Vinci's fresco, The Last Supper, one of the most recognizable scenes in all of European art. And it's the main image that the whole debate in the da Vinci Code unravels. The character known as T-Bing prompted us, he said, look closely at this scene and you'll notice a clue, you'll notice something very peculiar, right? The individual to the right of Jesus, traditionally assumed to be the disciple John, what did we notice? Dude looks like a lady! Dude looks like a lady! Dude looks like a lady. In fact, to be specific... We learned that the woman with the flowing red hair and delicately folded hands is none other than everyone... Mary Magdalene, and this lets the cat out of the bag, according to Brown, for the Last Supper, quote, practically shouts at the viewer that Jesus and Magdalene were a pair. In fact, they were more than a romantic pair. They were married. Yeah, Jesus was a husband. More than that, he was a father. Now, I see you didn't know this. This is the big secret that's been hidden for centuries in that Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene and actually intended for his wife, a woman, to establish and lead his church forward after he ascended to heaven. Now, if you missed this, by the way, I hope Leonardo's clues are obvious to you. You notice probably the letter M right at the center of the painting, which, according to Brown, <laughs> conspiracy theorists will tell you stands for matrimonio or Mary Magdalene, right? I mean, like, how could you miss that? <laughs> anyway, all this begins to untangle the often misunderstood legend of the Holy Grail. Now, how many of you have heard of the Holy Grail, right? It's invented by Monty Python. You remember that? <laughs> now, according to legend, the Holy Grail is the cup or the chalice that Jesus drank out of at his Last Supper. Remember in Scripture, he holds up this cup and he says, this is my blood, drink this in remembrance of me. And this chalice, supposedly, as legend has it, is the Holy Grail. And many accounts have been written about the quest to find the Holy Grail, right? Indiana Jones kind of stuff. Why? What's the big deal? 
Because according to medieval legend, to find this cup and drink out of it is supposed to give you eternal life, perpetual youth, clear up acne, take away your wrinkles, that kind of stuff. <laughs> but it's all legend. Fact is, Brown notes, there is no main chalice of, or cup in this picture. Do you see any main cup there? In fact, if you look closely, you notice there are 12 cups. Each guy has his own glass. So what's the deal? Where is this grail that was supposed to hold the symbolic blood of Christ? Well, the better question, Dan Brown says, is who is the grail that holds the blood of Christ? And now this should start all making sense in a minute. The real cup or chalice that held the blood of Christ was not a cup, but was the womb of Mary Magdalene. And again, you see the V-shaped wedge at the center of the picture, the symbol of the sacred feminine, right, that the church has kind of suppressed. Mary Magdalene, she's Mrs. Jesus. She is the Holy Grail, and she's in fact the one who carried on Jesus' bloodline. Not symbolically, but in a very literal way. That is, the Da Vinci Code claims Jesus and Mary had a child together, a little girl named, anyone? Sarah. Is she here tonight? It's supposed to continue on to today. And this is all part of the historical record, according to Dan Brown. After Jesus' crucifixion, Mary and her daughter actually went to Gaul for protection, that's modern-day France, where they established the Merovingian line of French royalty. And that actually is a, a true historical noble line of, of, of French royalty. Now, does that name Merovingian ring a bell for anyone? This is kind of interesting because this is where popular culture starts intersecting. Do you remember the movie The Matrix Reloaded? Do you remember the pompous French guy that spoke with a French accent? you remember his name? His name was Merovingian. And if you remember his sultry wife who led Neo, Morpheus, and Trinity to the key master, that's actually Monica Bellucci there, the wife of the Merovingian king in the Matrix sequel. Well, does her face seem familiar? Well, it just so happens that Monica Bellucci is also the actress who played the role of Mary Magdalene in Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ. <laughs> Coincidence? <laughs> I think not. You see, it's all a conspiracy. Anyway, you get the gist of it. Mary and Jesus were married, they had a child, but this was kept secret to protect them from being killed. And Jesus' choice of Mary, a woman, to lead his church was not a popular choice. In fact, it was most disturbing to the Apostle Peter, right? Who assumed he was the one earmarked to lead the church. Notice in the painting how Peter is leaning menacingly towards Mary Magdalene and slicing his hand like a blade across her neck. And then you notice in the other corner, his hand behind his back, wielding a sharpened dagger. Whoa! Peter was the jealous kind, according to Dan Brown. And to confirm this alleged conflict between Peter and Mary over the leadership of the early church, Brown references some ancient sources. Sources, he says, has been lost and buried for a long time. The Gnostic Gospels, right? These are ancient documents. They're actually not included in the traditional Bible that you have in the pew in front of you. But he quotes from these documents, these Gnostic Gospels, to document this hostile conflict. And specifically, this character known as Tebing, he quotes a passage from the Gnostic Gospel of Philip. He says, this is, this is, this is the documented. And the companion of the Savior is Mary Magdalene. Christ loved her more than all the disciples and used to kiss her often on the mouth. See? There's evidence that they were married. The rest of the disciples were offended by it and expressed disapproval. They said to him, why do you love her more than all of us? <laughs> Right, these guys were sensitive men, right? <laughs> and it's like, see, leave it to the woman to break up the band. It's how it always goes down. <laughs> well, for her part, when Sophie reads these words, she's skeptical. She says, well, it doesn't actually say anything of marriage. But Tebring replies, it says, all contraire. And he points to the first line in the, in the line, in the, in the companion, as any Aramaic scholar will tell you, that word companion in those days literally meant 
spouse. So all that we've come to know as historical Christianity is, in the end, a cover-up. A censored version that cuts out the primary role of women in the historical record. So, is this fact? Fiction? What's interesting is that through his research, Dan Brown, the real-life novelist, has actually come to believe that this is true. In a published interview with the Washington Post, he said, I was skeptical, but after a year and a half of research, I became a believer. As soon as people understand that the few Gospels included in the Bible are not the only versions of the Christ story, they begin to sense contradictions. Magdalene is the most obvious. Her role, he says, was deliberately distorted, a smear campaign by the early church fathers. Hmm. All this certainly raises a lot of interesting questions, doesn't it? I mean, in fact, this is where fiction begins intersecting with the many real-life experiences that a lot of us have. Because a lot of people, women in particular, have been hurt by the institutional church. That's a fact. I was actually talking on Friday with my friend Amanda. She's a waitress in the building that, that I work in. I was inviting her to church this Sunday. Actually, I don't know if Amanda's here. Amanda? Okay. She's pretending not to know me. It's all right. And I was telling Amanda, we're going to discuss this topic of women and faith this week at Liquid. She got a serious look on her face that showed she was very, very interested. And as we talked, she recounted her experience in growing up Catholic. And she told me the story of how she was actually kicked out of her parish as a young girl when she asked her male priest why he had a, quote, corner on God. Why do I have to tell you my sins? Why can't I go to God myself? Whoa, it's a tough question. And he felt she was being disrespectful, especially for a woman to be challenging his authority. And she actually, she actually was booted from the church. She became an Episcopalian. And I suspect others in this crowd may have similar memories. Down through the centuries, many women have been marginalized and wounded by the Christian church. That is a fact. And I'm not here to whitewash over that tonight. We have to face the facts and own up to our history. But the question before us is, what is authentic history? Better, what did Jesus intend? Is the church an all-boys club? Does it have it out for women and seek to oppress them? Well, instead of answering that with my own ideas or with Dan Brown's theories, I want to appeal directly to the primary sources just to uncover answers to these four questions raised by the novel. Who, who really was Mary Magdalene, and what was her relationship to Jesus? Question two, were they married? Because wasn't bachelorhood unusual and condemned in first century Judaism? Actually, Dan Brown says that. He says, Jesus was a Jew, and social decorum during that time forbade a Jewish man to be unmarried. Great question. Third, was Jesus the first feminist? Because that's one of the main claims made by the novel. Dan Brown writes on page 259, Jesus was the original feminist. He intended for the future of his church to be in the hands of Mary Magdalene. And lastly, was the early church misogynist, fancy way of saying hostile towards women, and did it suppress them? These are legitimate questions. So let's roll up our sleeves. We're going to unravel what I'm calling the Magdalene mystery. Are you with me? Okay, thank you. If you're a spiritual seeker, it's your first time here tonight, you need to know something from the outset. I ain't going to give you religious propaganda. <laughs> That's not the kind of church we are, all right? This is a community of people who, yes, follow Jesus, and who, yes, we too are seeking the truth. So I'm not going to give you the party line or quote some, you know, man-made biased doctrines at you. In our study, we, applied, we directly appeal to the original source material. That's a scripture in the canonical Bible. These are first century documents. I know there's like a fancy binding on it and everything nowadays. But these are first century eyewitness accounts. We went over this last week, how we got the Bible. And it didn't come by divine facts down to us or something like that. But actually, these are the most reliable manuscripts we have for understanding what Jesus was really like. And how he treated women. 
So historically and without bias, I need to begin then with a major concession. If you trace the origins of Christianity back to its first century Jewish roots, did you know that? It was actually it's the Judeo-Christian faith. It actually has its roots in Judaism. There's actually good reason to suspect that the Judeo-Christian faith is hostile towards women. Fact. First century Middle East society was what we call a patriarchal culture. You know what that means? Again, another fancy word. It means man was considered what? King, right? Women were second-class citizens. Now, this is the Jewish culture into which Jesus Christ was born. And scholars agree the role of females was one of great subjugation and low esteem. For instance, rabbis, teachers, and religious teachers in Jesus' day, generally held women to be quite inferior. One ancient rabbinic saying was that it was better for the Torah, the Jewish scriptures, to be burned than to be taught by a woman. That's how strong, at least in some circles, the sentiment was against a rabbi teaching a woman. And yet Jesus included many women among his followers in an intimate band of students, which, as you can imagine, was pretty countercultural. We'll get to that. But there was a rabbinic prayer commonly prayed in the first century, and it started with these words, Blessed art thou, O God, who did not make me a woman. In the eye-opening book, Why Not Women, the authors note, All devout Jewish males recited this prayer as soon as he awoke every morning while still in bed. Now get this, if you're a Jewish man, first thing you did is you get to your morning prayers when you woke up, and here's what you prayed. Blessed be he who did not make me a Gentile. That is a non-Jew, a pagan. Blessed be he, O Lord, who did not make me a woman. Blessed be he who did not make me an uneducated man or a slave. Because every pious Jew said this prayer, it's called the Baraka. As soon as he woke up and got out of bed, get this, it was the first thing, the first words that his wife heard every morning as she lay beside him. Can you put yourself in her position? These cruel words were the first thing you heard awakening every day of your married life. You lay in bed listening as your husband thanked God that he wasn't you. And then the realization kind of settles over you. Wait a minute. A slave actually could become free. Gentiles actually could convert. But you could never stop being a woman. It was a pretty bleak situation for females in the first century. Women were considered actually property. They could be divorced by their husbands for burning their toast. I kid you not. That's historical. Women were not even allowed to testify in court because the words and their character were deemed just totally unreliable. There's actually a group of Jewish rabbis who were so committed that they would not only not talk to a woman or teach a woman because they thought a woman could defile them, they would not even look at a woman. They were called the bruised and bleeding rabbis. They made a vow that they'd go through light without, if they saw a woman out of their eye, they'd look down and they were forever falling into things, tripping, running into trees, whatever. I'm serious. They were called the bruised and bleeding rabbis. True story. They'd rather hurt their bodies than look at a woman. So if you trace the historical roots of Christianity back to its first century Jewish roots, you see that women were indeed oppressed. The subjects of tremendous mistreatment and discrimination and second-class citizens all the way. Which makes the way Jesus related to them and treated them all the more scandalous. Now, by way of this backdrop, I wanted to open with a a passage from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 8. And I'll invite you to actually pass the pew Bibles down. They're in the middle rows there, and you can pass them on down. Bring the lights up just a tiny bit, Jen, if people want to follow along or take notes. This is the Gospel of Luke. We know he was a doctor, a medical man, and this is what he recorded about Jesus' ministry. Luke, chapter 8, starting with verse 1. It says, After this, Jesus traveled 
from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna, and many others. I'm going to pause here for just a moment, let you catch up. Because we tend to read these words and skim over them and just completely miss how shocking they would have been to anybody in the first century. Capture this. Jesus forms a little community, but it's made up of women and men who travel together. And they study and they learn together and they do ministry together. Do you have any idea how countercultural, how radical that was in the first century? Can you imagine the kind of rumors that would have circulated about this little community? Yeah, no doubt it would have been a bit scandalous. And in contrast to other rabbis who wouldn't even look at a woman, Jesus counted them among his closest followers and welcomed them into fellowship. And among the women Luke names in his gospel is the lady in question. It says, Mary called Magdalene. Now, two details to note here about Mary Magdalene. She was from the region known as, anyone want to take a guess? Magdala. That's why the second part of her name actually denotes Mary of Magdala, Mary Magdalene, the point. Her name is geographic when other women were associated with men. Notice, for instance, the woman who's listed behind her, Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household. In other words, all historical documents would go to great lengths to link a woman to whatever man, whether it's the father or husband, even up to the boss, <laughs> okay? So they could say, this is the woman who's property of this. But Mary is just linked to Magdala, which is a region there in ancient Palestine. It's kind of interesting. Uh, Mary is actually a modern form of the Jewish name Miriam. It was an extremely popular ancient name for women. In fact, there are seven Marys cited in the New Testament. That's why it's sometimes confusing. Anyway, this is our first hint that Jesus and Mary were not married. All Jewish literature made a big deal out of connecting women with the male household. And not once, not once in any historical documents is Mary Magdalene ever connected with Jesus or actually any other man. She's always Mary of Magdala, geographic designation, okay? That's actually located in, in the sea, by the Sea of Galilee in Israel. And it's actually, ironically, just give you a modern-day, well, close to modern-day parallel, Leonardo da Vinci. What's Leonardo da Vinci's last name? Hint, it ain't Vinci. <laughs> okay? What do you think, well, Italian lesson, what do you think da means? Of, Leonardo of Vinci. Yes, Vinci is an Italian village that's about 20 miles outside of Florence in Italy. Same thing back in the first century. Even the Gnostic ones. Mary Magdalene isn't connected to any male, but would have been if there was a connection to highlight. What we do know as a fact is that Mary Magdalene was an afflicted woman. Or should I say formerly afflicted woman. She had, according to Luke, seven demons cast out of her by this powerful prophet known as Jesus. And that's one of the few certainties that we do know about her. She was a recipient of Jesus' exorcism. That's also recorded actually in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16 that she had seven demons cast out of her. And that likely accounted for her passionate devotion to Jesus. Leave no doubt, she was one of the most devoted, loyal followers of Jesus throughout every stage of his ministry on earth. Look at the last line here, verse 3 of Luke 8. This is, this is an amazing line here. It says, These women were helping to support them out of their own means. In other words, who's paying the bills for this little community of Jesus and his followers? It's the ladies. And I know the women here tonight, you're saying to yourself, you're like, wow, times really change, don't they? <laughs> I 
The place per- Jesus permitted women to have in his fellowship was quite countercultural. I mean, even in our day, right, we sometimes talk about how sensitive it is when a woman, when a wife earns more than her husband, right? It's like, ooh, touchy subject. Not only did Jesus not consider this demeaning or threatening, he welcomed it. He was constantly confounding his disciples by the way he would speak with, teach, listen, and be approachable to women. Now, you can twist this if you want and say, well, see, Mary must have done this because she and Jesus were romantically involved. That's what it is. But then you're faced with this portrait of Christ that's totally out of sync with every historical record. Not only did Jesus sleep with one of his female followers, but he was taking advantage of them financially as well. Which means one thing, Jesus is more like a televangelist than the Son of God, right? (laughs) No. There was more to Mary's devotion than base motives like sex or money. Scripture tells us that actually that Mary was present at Jesus' crucifixion along with his mother Mary in John 19. When all the disciples had fled, get this, at the moment of betrayal, at the moment where Jesus is actually nailed to a cross, all 12 of his male disciples flee. Cowards, they run, except actually for John, the youngest one, who is actually the guy portrayed on the right of Jesus in the Last Supper. Except for other two other women, two Marys. Mary, Jesus' biological mother, and Mary Magdalene. In fact, John's eyewitness account gives evidence that there is actually no marital connection between Jesus and Mary at this moment. Because when you think of it, you're like, oh, wait, maybe that's why there is a connection. She is his wife. Who Who would hang around to see this? Watch. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Now, when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, the disciple took him, took her into his home. Now, get this. We're supposed to believe that moments before he is going to die, Jesus goes out of his way to make provision for his mother's care after he's gone, but totally ignores his wife. Right? That's, that's pretty cold. <laughs> There's no doubt that Jesus loved Mary and counted her among his most devoted followers, but that's where it ended. The scriptures simply don't support any more than that. The trail actually goes cold there. Mary Magdalene loved, and I mean loved, Jesus but it likely stemmed out of the tremendous freedom he had granted her by healing her from demonic possession. Scripture tells us that she was actually present at Jesus' burial in Matthew 27, and she was the first witness of Jesus' resurrection, and that's in John chapter 20. We'll look at that in a minute. So, but just get this in sharp relief. Mary was committed to Jesus, but as his follower, not as his wife. There are all sorts of holes in that theory put forth by the Gnostic Gospels, and when I say holes, I mean that quite literally. This is a picture of that text I read you earlier, okay, which Dan Brown quotes. This is a shard, a historical ancient shard from the Gospel of Philip. And you might notice, how do I put it, there are some pieces missing. (laughs) But to prove that Jesus was married, Dan Brown quotes the passage in the Gospel of Philip that says, and the companion of the Savior is Mary Magdalene. Christ loved her more than all the disciples and used to kiss her often on the mouth. The rest of the disciples were offended by it and expressed disapproval. And they said to him, why do you love her more than all of us? Now, the problem with this quote from the Da Vinci Code is that it's literally a case of fill-in-the-blanks theology. See, the key part of this text is broken at actually chapter 63 of the Gospel of Philip. And this is how it reads in the actual manuscript. I had to go to the library this week, actually do a little digging in the primary sources. And this is how it reads. 
And the companion of the bracket, Mary Magdalene, bracket, loved, and bracket, her more than bracket, all, bracket, the disciples, bracket, and used to, end bracket, kiss her, bracket, often, end bracket, on her, bracket, blank. That, this, this is literally what it says in the main text. And the brackets indicate broken locations in the manuscript where there's no papyrus. <laughs> there's no reading because the manuscript is damaged. Now talk about a mystery to solve. Typically, when papyrus like this has such poor quality, what scholars do is they actually fill in the blanks based on the number of letters that appear to be missing or the size of the break. So scholars typically fill in the blanks in this passage with the word mouth or face or forehead. And the fact is, for all we know, the text might have said the hand or even the cheek, since the statement implies that he also kissed other students. Presumably on the cheek, actually, is still is done today in the Middle East. Did you know that? It's still done today. And that actually would have been likely. It was a customary greeting for a rabbi to give a student in the first century. This wasn't utterly scandalous. And even if it's the mouth, it's hardly evidence Jesus and Mary had a thing going. This is not sport kissing. Even if they exchanged a kiss. Dr. Darrell Bach, this is a guy, he's a renowned uh, research professor of New Testament studies. He says this. He says, the basis for this text pointing to something primarily sexual does not exist. The reference merely pictures a tender spiritual relationship. But see, Dan Brown doesn't allow for any of this uncertainty. And he paints a romantic coupling as fact. And this is where it gets downright loopy, folks, because it's one thing to, like, blend fact and fiction together. It's another to be intentionally misleading. In the novel, the character Teabing, he makes a big deal out of the word companion, which is used to refer to Mary Magdalene. And he says this, he says... As any Aramaic scholar will tell you, the word companion in those days literally meant spouse. The problem with this is that the Gospel of Philip is written in Coptic, not Aramaic. (laughs) Serious. And so the word's meaning in Aramaic is irrelevant. (laughs) That's linguistic fact. That's actually not a matter of like interpretation or my books versus his. That's like fact. And the fact, the word used here is either really, not, not really Aramaic or Coptic, but actually a Greek loan word called koinonos, which clearly refers to a friend or associate, a close friend or associate, not a spouse. At least that's how it's used thousands of times in other Greek manuscripts of this time period. So the one shard of textual evidence that could support the idea of Jesus' marriage doesn't. That's the fact, folks, okay? And I, I realize it's disappointing to those of us who like secret codes and conspiracies. But it's just not there. There are holes all over Dan Brown's research, quote-unquote. Many of them quite literal. So here's a summary, okay, that Jesus was not married to, to Mary Magdalene, some evidence. Mary's never identified as Jesus' wife in any first-century sorts. That's across the board. Gospels in our Bible, Gnostic Gospels. Mary's miraculous healing most likely accounts for her devoted passion Jesus, seven exorcisms. And at his crucifixion, Jesus provides for the care of his mother, but not his wife. The Gnostic accounts have many holes in them. In fact, as we went over last week, they're written actually centuries later. They're not eyewitness accounts. And they're written, one thing's for sure, not by the people who claim to have offered them. So the Gospel of Philip, liberal conservative scholars agree, wasn't written by Philip. He's dead. Mary Mag- Gospel of Mary Magdalene, not written by Mary. She was dead. These are written up to two or three centuries after they had lived by people who wanted to get their agenda across. The Aramaic companion thing is irrelevant because it's written in Coptic. And that really is kind of like a sleight of hand, right? It feels kind of official. And lastly, it was not unusual for a Jewish man actually to be unmarried. Especially a prophet like Jesus. 
That's a major argument Brown makes to support his claims. On page uh, 255 of the Da Vinci Code, he, uh, he writes this. He says, Jesus was a Jew. And the social decorum during that time virtually forbade a Jewish man to be unmarried. According to Jewish custom, celibacy was condemned. And the obligation for a Jewish father was to find a suitable wife for his son. If Jesus was unmarried, at least one of the Bible's Gospels would have mentioned it and offered some explanation for his unnatural state of bachelorhood. Now, here's the deal, folks. Again, concession to Dan Brown. There's no doubt that marriage was the norm for the vast majority of Jewish men in the first century. That's indisputable. At the same time, it has to be said with equal sincerity. Celibacy, that is taking vows to abstain from marriage or sexual relations, was never, ever forbidden. And in fact, it was not unusual for religious leaders who devoted their lives to the Lord's work to remain single and celibate. Consider Jesus' forerunner, John the Baptist, single. Now, I understand, I know, he wore, you know, hair skirts and ate, you know, locusts. Who wants to marry this guy, right? But he's single. (laughs) Think about the Apostle Paul, right, who was on a special mission to reach non-Jewish people. Bachelor, single as well. Singleness was not wildly abnormal or second class or unnatural, as Brown claims. That's hyperbole, an exaggeration that kind of overshadows reality. And I'll appeal directly to Scripture for this. In Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church, in chapter 7, he writes this. He says, It is good for a man not to marry. I wish that all men were as I am. But each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Catch this. Paul describes singleness as a what? Gift. And I know some of you are probably saying, like, no thanks, keep that gift to yourself. That's Regardless... The point Paul's making is that God can use either married people or single people for his special purposes. One's not superior or better than the other. In fact, later on in 1 Corinthians 7, he writes, I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. (laughs) It's one of the reasons why people say, I think Paul's a misogynist. You know, he's complaining and says, you know, it's better not to be hooked up with those ladies. Uh, But this is kind of an interesting thing here because the the idea is that in both Judaism and Christianity, singleness and celibacy were esteemed as a means of being completely devoted to God. And that's just pragmatic. If you don't have a wife or kids or husband, you're not cleaning the Cheerios out from underneath the seat cushions of the minivan, you have more time to give to serving God. That's a gift, Paul says. And Jesus, by factual record, had this gift. In fact, it's interesting. While most rabbis in Jesus' day were married, Jesus actually more closely fulfilled the role of a prophet, more so than a rabbi. And prophets who remained single to be wholly devoted to God's calling on their life. In fact, there were actually sects of of Jewish believers that lived in complete celibacy. One was called the Essenes of the Dead Sea community. That's where you get those Dead Sea scrolls. And they remained single as a sign of their single-minded devotion to God. So all this to say, was Jesus married? Was Mary Magdalene really Mrs. Jesus? It's a fun thought, and it makes for great fiction, but it's simply not fact. Even in Leonardo da Vinci's earliest sketches, by the way, all our historians agree, he actually writes and identifies the disciple on Jesus' right as John. It was a common in, in Florentine painting at that time to make the youngest member in the group look effeminate and actually have almost androgynous kind of qualities. Now, great, you say, but you're like, This is interesting, sort of. It's real factual. It's apologetic. I want to get to the reality of of what did Jesus teach us, though, about women in his one-to-one interactions with them? How did he he relate to them or or actually determine that they should be treated? Was he the original feminist, as Brown claims? 
Well, to answer those last questions, I want to invite you actually to turn to John chapter 20. It's on page 1758. Let me give you page numbers here so you can follow along. Because you're going to be looking at at an authentic, eyewitness, first century account in Scripture here. And this is a fitting passage actually to end with. What you're about to see here in John 20 is actually the only recorded account in the entire New Testament where Jesus and Mary Magdalene were alone together. And the backdrop is the tomb of Jesus. Historically, we know Jesus was crucified. He was nailed to a Roman cross. A cross was an execution device in the first century. And it was was crucified largely for his claims to actually be the only son of God. That was blasphemous to the Jewish religious leaders of his day. And they understood he was claiming to be actually more than a rabbi, more than a prophet, but to be God in the flesh. We talked about that last week. And after he was crucified, the Gospels record how Joseph of Arimathea took his body down and actually buried it in a freshly cut tomb in the hillside. And a Roman guard was placed to be sure his followers wouldn't try to steal his body. But what happened three days after his burial is the thing that moves us from the realm of fact to faith. Because on the first day of the week, on Sunday, the the Sunday, the Gospel of John tells us that Mary Magdalene made her way to Jesus' tomb and discovered that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. She went and told the rest of the disciples about this, and Peter and John actually went to see for themselves. This is where we're going to pick up. Sure enough, the tomb only contains Jesus' grave cloths, but the man himself is missing, and so the real mystery is underway. This is where John picks up in chapter 20, okay? Verse 10 of his gospel. Read this with me, would you? Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary Magdalene stood outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I'm returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Now, just stop there. Because again, this is an extraordinary passage. And if you look at it closely, it reveals many things about Jesus' relationship to women. And the incredible place of respect and responsibility, actually, that he's entrusted to them. Like the rest of the disciples, Mary was not expecting Jesus to rise from the dead. Mark tells us she was going there, actually, to to anoint Jesus' body with spices. But when she finds a stone rolled away and the tomb empty, she's devastated, right? Look at this. She looks into the tomb. She sees angels who ask her why she's weeping. And she says, they've taken my Lord, not my husband, my Lord away. And I don't know where they've put him. And as she backs out, I want you to imagine her backing out of the tomb. She straightens herself. Now there's daylight is coming up. Her eyes are kind of blinded. And she's got tears in her eyes. And, And there's this man standing there behind her. But she doesn't recognize him. She's kind of blinded by grief. She thinks he's like the landscape guy. And she says, sir, if you've carried him away, tell us where you've put him and I'll get him. 
All she knows at this point is that the man who changed her life exercised her of seven demons. His body had been stolen, and she wants to find him. And this beautiful moment happens in verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary. You don't know if he yelled the word, Mary! (laughs) Or he said, Mary. And she turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni. In other words, when she hears Jesus' voice speak her name, she recognizes him. And John is making an outstanding point here that this woman, this formerly demon-possessed second-class citizen, is one of the most faithful and trusted disciples. If you skip back exactly 10 chapters to John 10, verses 3 and 4, Jesus talks about himself being the great shepherd, and he says, he calls his own sheep by name, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. And in a literal sense, when he says, Mary, when she hears his voice, she recognizes her Lord, her God. This is not her husband. This is not just a prophet. This is Jesus, the risen son of God. John's encoded a little secret of his own here to make a point. Mary Magdalene was not just a Jesus groupie. She's the first eyewitness of the resurrection of the risen Christ, one of his most trusted disciples a true follower. There's little doubt Mary actually grabbed on to Jesus when she recognized God himself was standing in front of her in the flesh. Jesus says to her in verse 17, he says, no, no, don't, don't hold on to me. <laughs> Mary undoubtedly wanted to cling to Jesus' feet like a child who fears like the parent is going to go away. And now that she'd found him, she didn't want to lose him again. But for now, Jesus said, don't, no, don't do that. He's in fact saying to Mary, you will see me again. I've not yet ascended to my father. Don't think you'll lose me. I'll be here for the next 40 days. No need to panic. Yeah, it was the same Jesus, but the nature of their relationship was changed. He was now relating to her as the risen Lord over all creation. Now, the Apostle Paul says this. He actually says, if Christ be not raised from the dead, our hope is in vain. In other words, it's great Jesus died on the cross, but you know what? It actually means nothing if he was not resurrected. That's at the heart of the Christian faith. In a lot of ways... A cross should not be the main symbol, but actually an empty tomb. For if Jesus had died, the people mourned, but he didn't have power over sin and death, then guess what? We actually are all chumps. We are deceived. He is just another man, another good teacher, another first century prophet, whatever. In other words, the whole thing's a wash. The resurrection is the hinge point of our faith, and the testimony now of Jesus' resurrection is entrusted to whom? A woman. And this is, what's the word? Unprecedented in all of antiquity. Remember, women were so low in the totem pole, so marginalized and afforded so little respect, their testimonies were not even admissible in a court of law. But Jesus decides he's going to appear to a woman, a former demoniac, and entrust to her to relay the news of his resurrection to the entire world. He actually says, go, Mary, to my brothers and tell them. That is, proclaim the good news to the rest of the disciples that I am who I say I am. I am the risen Lord. You recognize me. You know me as your personal Savior. And this is an incredible honor that Jesus bestowed on Mary. The implication for women in ministry are are actually hard to overstate. In essence, Mary Magdalene was not only the first and primary witness of the reality of Christ's resurrection, 
she became, in the words of an early church father, the apostle to the apostles. Right? While the rest of the male disciples, they're hiding for fear in the upper room while Jesus is being crucified and buried. Mary's there to witness the great reversal firsthand. Her faith was greater than her fear. And Jesus rewards her with this incredible honor. She becomes an apostle. Not in the technical sense of the, of the 12 apostles who Jesus appointed to lead the disciples. But in its more common usage as a sent or commissioned messenger who has an outstanding message to proclaim to people. News they've never heard before. Here's the deal, folks. Nobody who is hostile to women would ever record something as significant as that. It's amazing. In fact, a Roman historian, non-Christian, by the name of Celsus, he was part of a pagan society that honored women more because supposedly they had goddesses in their religion. He wrote this. He says, the resurrection of Jesus actually rests on the tales of hysterical females. It was widely known that testimony given to confirm the resurrection in an ancient world where women were not taken seriously as legal testimonies are given by a lady? Scandalous. All four Gospels insist that Jesus first appears to women and that Jesus selected them as the first witnesses to God's great act. It's this thundering affirmation of their immense value and trust and merit before God. And it's also actually evidence that the testimonies we hold in our hand are true. Scholars agree that this is, this is about authenticity of the Gospels we have. That is, if these were made up, if these were fabricated, made up by Jesus' followers to spread this myth about Jesus rising from the dead, the last thing a writer in the first century would do is base the eyewitness account on a woman's testimony. It actually proves the reliability of the Scripture. They're not biased. They're unfiltered eyewitness accounts that actually record what actually happened. At every turn, Jesus broke the mold of his misogynistic culture. He elevated women to a place of respect and honor as they traveled with him, as they ministered to him, and as they faithfully proclaimed the explosive news that God has risen from the dead and now any man, any woman can come back to fellowship and friendship with him. It's an amazing thing. I think Jesus' final words to Mary here in John 20 really help us understand the value that both men and women have in God's eyes. Jesus' last words to Mary are this, right? He says, don't hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I'm returning to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Now, Jesus' reference to God as father tells us something important about God and who we are as men and women made in his image. Contrary to the Da Vinci Code, when the Bible speaks of God as father, it does not mean that God is more like men than he is like women. Does God have a male body? No. Does God like men better than God likes women? No. Does God like action movies better than chick flicks? Yes, of course he does. But that's just common sense and good taste, all right? There's no theological significance. The Bible writers are careful to say that God is spirit. He doesn't have a body that defines gender like we do. And that women as well as men are equally co-bearers of God's image. Has the church always lived up to that reality? No. Many times it has not. But a careful study of the scriptures show that God's intent was for men and women to be together in this remarkable new community as co-equals and co-bearers of his divine image. And that's the basis for the equality or value of the sexes within the Christian church. It was only decades later that the Apostle Paul would write these incredible words in Galatians 3, verse 28. He wrote, There is now neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor nor free, 
male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Do you understand a statement like that had never before been written in the history of the world until Jesus Christ appeared on the scene? We can't even comprehend how paradigm-shaking this new reality that Jesus introduced would have been to an ancient world that had grown accustomed to treating women like doormats. And this statement in the Bible you hold in your hands tonight is incredible because I want you to think about it. Some of you, a few advanced students in the back, you're like, wait a minute, this sounds familiar. Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. Where have I heard those three couplings before? Before Paul's dramatic conversion to following Jesus, he was a Pharisee. He was a Jewish religious leader. More than that, he was their golden boy. He was well up his way on the rabbi's ladder of success. So like all devout Jewish males of his day, in the morning when he got up, guess what he recited? That three-pronged prayer of discrimination. Blessed be he who did not make me a Gentile. Blessed be he who did not make me a woman. Blessed be he who did not make me a slave. Slaves actually had an all in their ear to show that they were owned by Roman men. Women could live or die based on a husband's judgment whether she pleased him or not. And female children, they were often abandoned, left to die of exposure. Man in the ancient world held literally the power of life and death over women, children, and slaves. And here, now that his life had been transformed by a God who loved women and was resurrected from the dead to bring life and dignity to all people, Paul sings a different tune. He says, there is now neither Jew nor Greek Slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Do you get the point? When Paul pens this outstanding Christian truth, he has that oppressive rabbinic prayer in mind. It's as if he deliberately chose the three pairs of the traditional morning prayer, Gentile, Jew, slave, free, male, female, to declare that these distinctions, folks, now that Jesus has come, they are all defunct. Goodbye. There is neither Jew nor Greek, religious or irreligious, slave nor free, male nor female. You're all one in Jesus. He says, it's over, folks. Now that the Lord has risen from the dead, there is no more privileged hierarchy. There is no more power struggle oppression or desperate ploys for control or status. One. Men and women, you are all one in Christ Jesus. And this teaching turned the ancient world upside down. It also helps us understand why the gospel was literally experienced as good news by so many of the marginalized masses in the first century. There had never been a community like that up to that point in history. I'm telling you, there's nothing like the Christian church when it lives out what Jesus intended it to be. So the question, was Jesus the original feminist? Because by asking that question, you mean... Did Jesus raise the value of women up in the first century? The answer is an emphatic yes. Or feminism, as we know it today, it's, you know, it's largely more of a political movement to equate the sexes in both value and roles. Jesus would agree with the value part. Men and women are equally valuable in the eyes of God. Men are not superior. Women are not inferior, or vice versa. But equality in roles is a different issue. It's actually clear in God's economies that men have certain roles and responsibilities that are different from the roles and responsibilities of women. For instance, in marriage, they're told to lay down their life on behalf of their wives. Yeah, it ups the ante a bit. Of course, this distinction has been kind of blurred and it's been confused in our society because we kind of make, you know, value and roles equal, which they're not. The personal value of a man and the personal value of a woman are not tied to what they do or what they're responsible for, but that's 
It's another topic altogether. But leave no doubt, the church established by Jesus Christ, the one that we're charged with the responsibility today of leading forward, it holds an esteemed place for all women and relies on their strengths, on their gifts, and their leadership. And we do that today at Liquid in our church, entrusting many of our small groups to be led by capable female leaders. I think of like, you know, Melissa and Evan, you know, Rachel, Daria, Erica. Uh, I'm thinking of like over right now, our children are being over there, developed, nurtured, and formed by Lindsay and Cindy. That's the legacy that Jesus left us. And it's a core value we hold in great regard. Throughout his ministry on earth, Jesus overturned the social mores in virtually every single encounter he had with females. If, I don't have time for it. We're, we're ending. We're out of time. But you'll recall that Christ tapped the Samaritan woman who had five failed marriages to lead a spiritual revival in her town. Female, divorced, you are welcome in my family. Jesus received the prostitute's anointing with gratitude in Luke 7, letting her massage his feet with perfume, using her hair as a rag. Scandalous? Yes. She was sexually broken, thrown away by others, repentant? Yes. And forgiven and accepted by Jesus, the risen Christ. Author Dorothy Sayers puts it this way. She says, perhaps it's no wonder that the women were first at the cradle and last at the cross. They had never known a man like this man. And there had never been such another. A prophet and teacher who never nagged at them, who never flattered or coaxed or patronized, who never made arch jokes about them, never treated them as either the women, God help us, or the ladies, God bless them, who rebuked without querulousness, praised without condescension, who took their questions and arguments seriously and never mapped out their sphere for them, never urged them to be feminine or jeered at them for being female, who had no axe to grind and no uneasy male dignity to defend, who took them exactly as he found them and was completely unselfconscious. You get the point. Jesus related to women exactly as he created them, as equal reflectors of the image of God. And for that, we can thank our risen Lord. Let's stand together, men and women, and do that. Jesus, we do thank you um, that in your presence, all artificial, man-made constrictions kind of fade away. There is neither male nor female. We're all one in Christ Jesus. I'd ask your special blessing on the women in our church. We are thankful, Lord, for their gifts, for their strengths, for their leadership. And we thank you for Mary Magdalene. We thank you for the Apostle John. We thank you for all the men and women you've used down through the ages to communicate the news that has changed the world. That Jesus the Christ has risen from the dead and offers new life to anyone who desires it. You have conquered sin and death in our life today, Jesus. We thank you for welcoming any man, woman, or child into your family through simple trust in your sacrifice on the cross. We love you, Lord, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen.